Hello, everyone. I'm Trent Luce. Welcome to another edition of Rural Route, the program where we gather every day at this time. Well, we do it Monday through Friday anyway. And what we do when we gather is continue to address the issues between rural and urban America. And every issue can be solved at the grocery store, Jenny Swigert. Is that what you're telling me today? Yes, of course. Every issue. Hmm. That's kind of like our theme since you had Sean on. Uh, that was a great conversation. I've thought a lot about that locally owned grocery store by the people like a co-op grocery store. So you wanted to continue to charge down this path and bring us somebody brand new to the program. Did you not, Jenny? I did. Yes. This is <laughs> Leah McGrath. <laughs> She's not brand new to rural route per se, but maybe for the when or the Thursday, we, the people, um, and Leah comes from an, the Ingalls market, which is a chain that's in Southeast mm-hmm. U.S., and it actually started in the 1960s, I believe. Right. And it really kind of was for rural areas and mm-hmm. rural, smaller town areas. Right. But it's now in much larger cities, I believe, <clears throat> which is totally fine. Hey. But you have, go ahead. Well, just don't leave out the part about being a registered dietitian. <laughs> Right. She is. Yeah. She has a unique role, at least for this area, it's unique in that she is a registered dietitian. She has had a lot of history working with WIC and Army, and um, but we we want to probably touch on all of that. But really, I wanted you to provide the aspect of what does a grocery store dietitian offer and. Who can find them and what kind of questions should they ask? Sure. And, well, and so of course, works the the milita- I'm sorry, Leah. And of course, <laughs> it works, works with the military for a very distinct reason. Well, I, yeah, veteran. I used to. Yeah. Cause I was a, a dietitian and officer in the army. So yeah. Yeah. Again, no. thank you for your service. Thank you. Yeah. That was a long sorry time. Sorry to interrupt ago. you. No. Go ahead. No, thanks for having me on. And yeah, Ingalls, um, as you said, Jenny, started out um, uh, in very rural communities in western North Carolina and then spread into South Carolina, Tennessee, and Georgia. And just like the urban sprawl of um, Atlanta and Charlotte caused a lot of people to start using those really kind of small, quiet mountain communities as second home communities. So what were really very rural and um, a lot of times very agricultural communities are now more um, second home communities and resort destinations. Um, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, um, but that's what happened in since 1963 when we started. But um, yeah, in answer to your question, um, I think it's really hard actually to tell you exactly what a supermarket dietitian does because it really depends on which supermarket, uh, you know, whether uh, dietitians are working in a store uh, doing medical nutrition therapy um, or they're working kind of behind the scenes doing recipe and product development um, or they're doing more employee wellness with the own their own employees, or they're doing writing and TV and radio and more virtual stuff. It really, it's very unique to the supermarket what the role of the dietitian is. 
And I'm just assuming that one of the largest growth areas is the one that you brought up last, which is the registered dietitian providing information for health and wellness to the employees. That, that seems to be a hugely growing trend. Well, yes and no. I think um, just the way uh, medical care is structured, um, I know um, in many cases insurance plans have those kinds of roles within the insurance company that mm-hmm. do outreach to employees. So um, the role of the dietitian with that corporation who is employed by the corporation and not the insurance company may be uh, doing things like setting up health and wellness programs at the corporate level or um, kind of providing some very general information, um, maybe doing some one-on-one counseling. But um, I, I'm not really sure if I, if I would say that's a real growth area for dietitians. Uh, and in fact, uh, unfortunately, um, I don't know, you have Hy-Vee out there, Trent, right? Mm-hmm. Hy-Vee I, supermarket? I do. Yeah, I do. Yeah, so they, um, they've recently kind of gotten rid of a bunch of their dietitians that were in their stores. Really? Um, and I think that was just before the pandemic. Um, and I'm not sure exactly what happened there, but um, they used to have probably about 200 dietitians. I think they're down to about... 80 or 100 dietitians now. Really? Was mm-hmm. that, you think, like a cost savings move or? I don't know. You know, I can't help but wonder, um, you know, when, of course, when the pandemic came, everything um, shifted. Uh, you know, I was doing a lot of public speaking and doing things in stores with our farmers and local food entrepreneurs. So everything was had to be taken out of the stores. We couldn't do anything at the store level like that. Um, so for me, it wasn't a big deal because I was already doing things virtually with like writing and um, social media. So it wasn't a big deal for me, but if somebody's whole job was at the store level in the store, um, I, I am only speculating, but I don't know if that was part of it, the decision um, that, it just, there was nothing they could have them do at that point. I don't know. So, if the person goes to the grocery store, obviously it's their greatest collective thought process about food. Is the grocery store the place that typically the most consumers also seek dietary information? You know, that's a great question, Trent, because I think that um, – I think in a perfect world, that might be the case, that Mm -hmm. there would be that opportunity to educate at the store level. But realistically, what happens is you get mom shopping with two kids or (laughs) running from her from soccer practice or to her yoga class or dad trying to no, you know, no. dads do not kids. belong in the grocery store. Dads right. Can, and so dads can go pick up like two things around the outside of the grocery store. The rest of it's just a wilderness. Keep me out of there. <laughs> so I, I, I think that, um, you know, I don't know how you can really educate effectively when people are so time stressed and um, attention stressed in that kind of environment. Um, 
so I think more realistically, the education comes maybe more on virtually on social media or through um, through TV or through radio uh, venues like this, rather than necessarily at the store level. So you probably just explained why Hy-Vee made the cost-cutting measure. Yeah, could be. Could be. I mean, I, I don't know for sure what happened there. I mean, I know some dietitians who were working there, but, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's a great opportunity for dietitians. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of different things that you can do, but if you solely focus on um, physically being in the store, it's very limiting. So then that makes me wonder, you, you threw out about four options. I have a feeling that most people get most of their dietary information from, I heard. <laughs> they had a friend who told them something that they heard yeah. or they saw a chef on a cooking show or right. whatever the case may be. I, I know that people don't go read the dietary guidelines like nope. the three of us do. So I'm wondering, is that their source of information? I heard from a friend that fat is bad. Yeah, you know, I think, and I, I know Jenny and I have talked about this, that I think social media uh, became the I heard button, right? Yeah, so right. when people started saying things to me like, um, a friend of mine shared this article on Facebook, or uh, I saw this product, well, now it's like, I saw this product on Instagram or Twitter, but Facebook is still the sort of behemoth of all that content. So um good or bad a lot of the uh the best and worst of information is is shared around facebook from whether it's like a scary video about you know how farmers care for animals or whether it's um good information it's all out mm-hmm. there there's nothing good on facebook don't even turn to it <laughs> What do you think about? Wait, uh, hold on, Jenny. Oh. Hold on. I was being <laughs> facetious, and that was just to set me up to say we have to go to a break. Oh. Neogen creating opportunities to allow us to look on the inside of the cells of an animal. Just take a tissue sample, submit it, and Neogen will tell you what desirable traits, possibly what traits you want to avoid that that animal may pass on to the next generation or exhibit themselves. In the case of our certified Piedmontese system, we test every single animal for the myostatin gene to make sure that that beef is going to be tender. It's all about shining a light on your genetic future. Details about your involvement at Neogen.com. We'll be back with more Roll Route after this. Welcome back to Roll Route, Trent Loose, Leah McGrath, Jenny Swaggart checking in. We've got almost the whole country covered. I'm in North Dakota today. We've got North Carolina. we got to have every North covered, don't we? There's not another North state in Illinois. No. <laughs> As yeah. Andrew Anderson pointed out today, Illinois or Chicagoland, whichever one you want to put. And somebody oh, pointed out, true. Jenny, yeah, but... Uh, Brian Peterson pointed out, you know, downstate Illinois should claim ownership of Chicago. We've funded that hole for quite some time. <laughs> I do, to be honest with you. I mean, it is what it is. Yeah, and- it is what it is. Okay, Diane is just demanding our attention. Diane Sullivan uh, from Massachusetts. <laughs> 
And her question uh, was back up here a bit, but it, it was involving uh, the education dissemination to folks who are on supplement, yeah. supplemental nutrition assistance program, the SNAP program. Leah, what's going on with that? So there's actually a program and has been for, for um, probably, um, I don't know, 10 years um, that was originally founded by the Walmart Foundation. And, uh, but it's not a branded program, so a lot of retailers use it. And there is uh, sort of a component that's um, store tours, like educational store tours that are directed towards SNAP and WIC participants and teaching them about things like label reading and um, uh, maybe some cooking tips. So um, I can't, for the life of me, I can't remember. It'll come to me, the name of the program. But um, it's often deployed by a lot of um, food banks and food pantries and community organizations that deal with um, uh, individuals, lower income, SNAP participants, um, people, um, uh, food insecurity uh, any kind of any kind of entity that deals with food insecurity. It's a free program. There's like binders and they have information and um, they they lead tours and they do classes. So that's definitely out there for SNAP SNAP participants. So uh, I have to ask this question because we're now in what all could consider the 52nd week of uh, our lives being altered. What has food insecurity done from your perspective? in that 52 weeks? Has it, has it changed it at all? Oh my, yeah. You know, I know um, as a retailer, we work with a food bank here that distributes food to um, a lot of different small uh, entities throughout our region. And the demand for food is just skyrocketed. Um, you know, we've had, especially, I, I don't know it, if it's, I think it's perhaps gotten a little bit better now as things have opened up again and, and, um, things have reopened. But, um, you know, I saw so many announcements of, um, food distribution, um, that were going on that I'd never seen before. And just the quantity that, um, the food banks were looking for or needed to distribute was just, was dramatically different. I mean, it was huge. David Chaddick's asking, I think, a very fair question. There used to be a government cheese program. Is that still around? You know, this year we had, um, we did have government food boxes. Um, mm -hmm. and we had, I think, either three or four iterations of those. And they, they were a combination of produce boxes and, uh, cheese. I think, I don't, I don't think there was any, like, um, meat in them but they yeah. were distributed by a lot of food banks and they were a big help to a lot of farmers who lost um, their normal distribution channels with restaurants so they made deals with the government made deals with uh, a lot of farms they created these boxes the boxes um, were distributed through food banks and they would usually have things like cheese in them um, Sometimes uh, different produce items, canned goods. So those, the, those initiatives are definitely still out there. 
So then my follow-up to that, sorry, Jenny, then you can go. Um, my follow-up to that is that if we have seen, which one would expect, an acceleration in the need for uh, supplemental nutrition assistance, what's the health of the individual? Because the, the products that they most want to consume are not always necessarily, or most readily available, are not the high proteins, uh, the proper fats, things like this. What, what's the overall health of the consumer that's been in this time of greater need doing? You know, that's, I mean, I don't know that you can really generalize because especially now you've got uh, um, so many people who probably were never unemployed or underemployed before, especially mm-hmm. in the service industry that, um I know in our area, the service industry is the major industry. I mean, between tourism, so many people who were servers at restaurants and worked in hotels and um, were out of work and and needing um, needing support. So I I think that you can't really generalize as to the health of um, of who was really in need, especially during the pandemic. Well, yes, boiled sir. egg would go a long ways. Jenny, go. <laughs> I have so many questions at this point, but uh, have you seen any lessening on the restrictions for the leftover food and what grocery stores and restaurants, I mean, hotels are not doing events yet. So that that's always been a big um, pet peeve of mine. But as far as grocery stores and other ways of keeping food waste and giving that out to people, is there any changes there? You know, there's um, a lot of the limitation. If you think of it like kind of like a, a supply chain uh, in, a, in a way, a lot of the limitations in terms of dealing with leftovers are um, – how long you can hold something and the quality um, and the food safety issues. So those are things that um, food service and retailers always are very concerned about. Like um, how long has it been sitting out? What's the condition? You know, what are food safety concerns? Because you certainly don't want to make somebody sick by donating food that may look fine, but um, then once it's out of your hands, and distributed, you know, what would be the implication or uh, if if someone was to get sick from those items. Now, what we did see is, um, you know, early on, a lot of entities like event venues and hotels that had to close down or reduce capacity were um, setting up feeding um like congregate feeding, you know, to-go meals for people, donating food. So that was definitely happening early on. And then and then people just adjusted to um, what to order or what not to order. Um, so that wasn't as big of a deal uh, after the first couple of weeks. Uh, that's just an affluent problem. When, when you have one-third of the nation's food going into a landfill, the number one stream into landfills across the country, at the same time as you have people who are food insecure, you got a bureaucracy problem. That's what you have. 
Well, it's and just I a guess that's kind it's of just where just I was going. Around. Uh, Leah first. Oh, I said it's Sorry. just how to. <laughs> it's just how can you get the food from one place to the people who need it, and I think a lot of times, um, you know, we're really well intentioned about you know, what we want to give to people like, oh, you know, they need to have fresh fruits and fresh vegetables and fresh meat and fresh mm -hmm. eggs or whatever. And I think an important part of the conversation about um, working with people who are food insecure is understanding what does work best for them. If, if a person has no home, giving them perishable foods is not doing them any favors. If they don't have a, a working refrigerator, if they don't have electricity, if they don't have a stove, if they don't have a freezer, you, you know, those are all considerations for those individuals. So very, you know, over the years I've met very many, many, many very well-intentioned people who have said, you know, this is so easy. Why don't we just give out fresh fruits and fresh vegetables and, you know, hamburger or whatever to these people? Well, people don't have electricity. If they're living in their car, if they're living um, under an underpass, that's not going to do them any good. They can't cook. They can't store food. So they really do need those non-perishable items. So uh, I think we have to balance out good intentions with accurate expectations of how to help people. Balancing good intention, intentions with accurate expectations. That's the okay. slogan for somebody right there. there. The stand at Paxton County. Make sure that you watch this flick on Netflix. If you have not done it, it challenges, it shows the challenges that we have in this country today with particularly animal ownership. It's called The Stand at Paxton County on Netflix. More roll out after this. Welcome back to Rural Route. Trent Lewis alongside Jenny Swigert, Leah McGrath, joining us, a registered dietitian and veteran U.S. Army. We say thank you for that. Thank you. Thanks. I'm shaking my head. Yes, that Diane's last comment here about lived experience. Um, that's that's something that is huge and something that Diane has taught me about. And I think she taught me, too, about, you know, something I hadn't, thought about, and I guess this is privilege, when we give macaroni and cheese to food banks, we don't think about the fact that a lot of people don't have milk to make that macaroni and cheese and yeah. to make sure that you're also putting in condensed milk so that there is something that can be used to make that macaroni and cheese. And, and butter is probably the same situation is there a substitute that you would recommend for like for, for things to donate in general is that what you're asking in place in place of butter well you could yeah because you're not going to want to donate butter i mean you could do donate maybe liquid oils would be something i think um if you were to do condensed milk you could probably um it might work to do to do it. I've never tried to do it without a butter, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I've been to food pantries and seen whole shelves of pickles and, you know, people, and I remember going to this little food pantry that was attached to a church and they were showing me their shelves and there were shelves and shelves of pickles. 
And I said, what are you going to do with these pickles? And they said, you know, we don't know, you know, we can only don't, we can only give out what we're given and we try and supplement that through the food banks. But we really wish people would think about things like you just said, Jenny, like how can you make a meal? I mean, I've made rouladen, which is like the German dish where you flatten out the meat and put a pickle in it. But aside from eating a pickle, I don't know what you're going to do with an enormous jar of pickles. So, um, I think that's a great point, Jenny, when you're, when you are donating to food um, banks, um, whether it's, or some sort of food drive to think about not just cleaning out your cabinet, but think about foods that um, can help people make a meal, whether it's um, canned meats or stews or canned fish, um, pasta that can be made with water, um, canned fruits and vegetables, um, things like that, cereal, well, cereal, if, if they have milk donated, but yeah, you have to think about that, those aspects of donation. Feasibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so Leah, you and I have not actually conversed since we came out with our newest dietary guidelines, which aren't new at all. Your assessment of that, it was the same old, same old. Well, you know, I think, uh, I think it was interesting that they have done more of the lifespan. I think that that, uh, was definitely a change. Um, I don't think there were any like earth shattering differences. Um, I think that people need to be reminded that these guidelines are in, intended for healthy Americans. They're not a prescriptive dietary guidelines. Um, for medical nutrition therapy or, or for diseases. There are other, there are other, um, types of, um, nutrition management for those things. Um, I think that many entities have, um, things they like about them and things they don't like about them depending on their frame of reference, whether it's, um, you know, they are, pro animal proteins or against animal proteins, you know, um, somebody's always going to find fault. And I think that, that the dietary guidelines in general, people need to just think about the fact that, that, um, uh, uh, they, it's not, it's not going to bring down the house. Yeah. It's, it's nothing, a lot of that is nothing new. It is based on research and, um, it takes, it takes them a long time to get to these points to develop these dietary guidelines. So, um, I think people are quick to find fault and, um, kind of pick out one or two things that they're not happy about and focus on those rather than looking at the big picture of, um, what the dietary guidelines are. Well, I, I found a lot of fault in what this batch did because you mentioned that they look at the science, but they intentionally excluded science that didn't fit their way of thinking. And it's the health and well-being of the nation that suffers. Now, most people are sitting here saying, I don't follow the dietary guidelines. It doesn't matter. Well, you know that I now have a, a dietitian in our family who is uh-huh. working in <clears throat> hospital and long-term, long-term care facilities. It matters. It matters a lot what you can do 
particularly for therapeutic reasons. If you have somebody who who's a diabetic, um, there are certain protocols you need to be putting into place. And at times you're restricted because the dietary guidelines don't allow for that. So it matters a lot. And and also, you, I'll just <laughs> shut up in a second. I see our military struggling in feeding these warriors the best way possible for strength and stamina. And what, what do so, you think along those lines? Follow? Can you follow up with what is happening in D.C. right now? What What is happening in D.C. with? Um, our soldiers are being fed um, undercooked meat. Um, they're becoming ill due to the feeding um, protocols that are being followed. Um, some of those are from Illinois and they're from our Illinois National Guard. I, I, I have no idea. Like, I don't know what you mean feeding undercooked meat. I don't know what, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure what you're referencing. It's just I, been in the news the last day or two and maybe it's been more prevalent here because it does involve our, our National Guard. Um, but look it up in the news after the show. Well, so those are two different, very different populations. Um, mm-hmm. If you're dealing with long-term care and people with diabetes, they wouldn't be following the dietary guidelines because those are dietary guidelines for healthy Americans. That's what the dietary guidelines are. If someone has diabetes, there there is a, a therapeutic diet for people with diabetes or diets, I should say, because it really depends on the individual. So, when we're looking at somebody with a disease, you need to just push aside the dietary guidelines because that's not applicable to them. That's that's not the population that the dietary guidelines were designed for. Now, with troops and in a in a uh, wait wait wait, I, I I know that's how it's not designed, but what that requires is that provider to segregate and have multiple different avenues. And more times than not, in a cost-saving cost saving measure, they don't do that. They just treat everybody the same and follow the guidelines, which is poor health care. And, and I see it happening not only in where other people are that I know, but across the country. That, that, that to me, is a major problem. Well, but see, that might be a problem of the facility because if you walk, you walk into any hospital – I mean, and I've worked in clinical environments and I know dietitians that work in clinical environments. Um, you will have a lot of different diets uh, that can be prescribed for those patients in the hospital. And they're not, um, they're based on the disease. Mm-hmm. It's not based, it's, you know, so you have somebody who has heart disease and um, maybe they're retaining fluid. They need to be on a fluid restriction and a sodium restriction. You have somebody with diabetes, they need to be on a, a carbohydrate restriction. So um, there can be multiple, multiple different diets for um, individuals in a clinical environment. Now in a long-term care facility, that's going to be, can be very different. Um, you no, know, we don't, you know, honestly, if it was my grandmother and she was 90 years old and in the last years of her life and she wanted and if she had diabetes, but she wanted ice cream, I would be like, give her ice cream because, you know, this is this is not the time to restrict this person's um, 
restrict them from having a half a cup of ice cream when they're 90 years old. So very different populations when you're talking about kind of an acute situation in a hospital and somebody in long-term care um, who might be at, uh, at the end of their life and the only one of the few pleasures they might get might be the foods, special foods that they're able to eat. Um, but, you know, and I don't know the situation. I'm not familiar with the situation with the military. I don't know if this was something, you know, in a deployed situation. Uh, well, I'll give you a perfect case in point. And I saw this play out because I have been on several military bases thanks to the late Bill Brody and the All-American Beef Battalion. But the first time I really was aware of it and I started digging into it was I was at Fort Carson in Colorado. And you go into their cafeteria area and there's this big sign about beverages to consume and beverages not to consume and beverages to once in a while consume and beverages to never consume. And whole milk was in the the category of beverages to never consume. And in my world and the science that I can share with anybody is that whole milk is the best way to have a healthy life because it increases satiety. You have a fewer uh, cravings the rest of the day. The milk has the conjugated linoleic acid fat benefit that we need. It has the protein that we need. And here's the Army. Because the USDA guidelines say that whole milk is a no-no, the greatest warriors in the world can't consume the first nourishment that we get as human beings, whole milk. Well, I don't know if they actually can't consume it, but the, it is normally available, but just like, well, I wouldn't say just like sodas. Um, as you know, uh, or you may know, that one of the biggest challenges the military has is with uh, weight issues with soldiers, especially coming um, new soldiers coming into the military. So a lot of times the emphasis is on um, making certain weights um, in order to be able to do different physical activities. So, um, I mean, I, I can't speak to what Fort Carson has. I don't, you know, remember having signage like that in um, our cafeteria. I certainly remember conversations with soldiers about drinking sodas because yeah. that was it. It normally was not an issue how much milk a soldier was drinking. It was how many um, energy drinks and sodas soldiers were drinking. So, um, uh, I, yeah. This is where I rudely have to say we've got one segment left. Certified oh. Piedmontese creating the opportunity for cattlemen. We're at 25,000 25, head. We need 50,000 head to make this program really flourish. If you're interested, get more details at LoneCreekCattleCode.com. Marlon Will is the man to talk to. Certified Piedmontese. It works for us. It'll work for you. We'll be back in the last segment after this. Welcome back to Roll Route, Trent Luce, Jenny Swigert, Leah McGrath. We're already into the final segment. One thing that I just want to set up here in the last segment, when you talk about diabetes, when you talk, which, by the way, is a bigger issue than COVID. People lost sight of that. Uh, we have several issues which are bigger than COVID. You may not agree with that, but it's true. Well, um, you can you can live for a long time with uh, diabetes um, and type one or type two. The chances of you dropping, going to the hospital and being on a ventilator with diabetes are not the same as 
having COVID. So one is a chronic disease, one is a viral illness. So they're very different things. If you give me a menu and say, you got to take one, Trent, COVID or diabetes, I'm taking COVID. You went what? Well, I didn't, I'm sorry, I didn't catch what you said. If I have, if I'm given a menu and said, Trent, you have to take one of these two, I'll take COVID over diabetes. You know, um, I mean, I would, I would probably qualify that and say maybe mild COVID, you know, with no long-term effects because, uh, you know, my husband has uh, type one diabetes. He's had it since he was eight years old. And um, he, this is something he has to, it's a chronic disease that he autoimmune disease that he has to manage every single day. Um, So uh, if, if it was like a choice, okay, you can have mild COVID, no long-term effects. I I probably would say the same thing. I probably would say the same thing. Tell us about type 1 because that's, that's so uncommon that I, I don't even know enough about it. I know type 2 and type 3. I don't know type 1. That's a good so type 1, type 1 is an autoimmune disease, um, and uh, it's... Um, sometimes something kind of happens in the body that your body attacks itself and um, basically attacks the beta cells in your pancreas so you're no longer producing insulin. So for my husband and anybody with type 1 diabetes, they have to have an external source of insulin. And, you know, years ago that insulin was coming from pigs and they used to harvest um, the insulin from pigs to be able to have um, have insulin for humans. Because before that, if you had type one diabetes, you would die eventually. I mean, there, your, your body would basically digest itself. I mean, it was pretty terrible. But um, so for, for a number of years, they were able to use pig insulin for humans, and then they created um, a genetically engineered version of that so there was more consistency in the insulin. Um, there's different kinds of insulin. Some are short-acting, some are long-acting, um, but uh, it has changed lives. I mean, insulin um, for people who are with type 1 diabetes, and now people can live very long, normal, healthy lives um, with type 1 diabetes, and that wasn't probably 56 years ago that if you were diagnosed, well, more than that, probably 60 years ago, if you were diagnosed or with diabetes, it would have been um, not, I wouldn't say a death sentence, but it would have been a very difficult, very much more difficult life. Do you know what the medical doctor prescription for diabetics was pre-1923? It was probably to eat um, um, you know, I've seen something like that. Um, no, go ahead. Tell me. It, it, you're spot on. It's to, it was to eat high amounts of animal fat and animal protein. Yeah. And we started moving away from that. That medical doctors abandoned that because we had a pharmaceutical company take the pig derivative insulin and treat diabetes instead of continuing on. And in today's world, I'm using a, a term that was never thought of in 1923. It was a keto diet. The keto diet was a suggestion for preventing diabetes. And we moved into relying on a drug instead of diet to prevent chronic disease. I, I think it was a pivotal point in our 
our nation's history. Well, again, like you mentioned, there are different types of diabetes. So there's a big difference between between somebody who has type 2 diabetes and type mm-hmm. 1 diabetes and even maybe somebody who has gestational, a woman who has gestational diabetes that is a lot of times exacerbated by hormones when she's pregnant. Um, so, I mean, the keto diet is not the answer for all those different individuals or the, all those different types of diabetes. So it, it certainly got, has gotten a lot of press, but um, if someone is a type person with type 1 diabetes, they can do the keto diet or some kind of version of that, but they're still going to need insulin. They're still... Uh, it's not going to cure their diabetes. Uh, just quickly, Jenny, we have Dr. Ted Fogarty here all fired up about hyperbarics. He will be with us tomorrow once again to talk about hyperbarics and ketosis and the diet. So what to Fogarty tomorrow, Jenny Swaggart? Um, what do you think about, so I, I think this is probably close to keto, but the carnivore diet, um, I'm seeing a lot about that. Um as someone in the agriculture industry, I've been attacked by vegans for years and years and years. I never, ever imagined being attacked by carnivores or the oh. carnivore diets. But as a member of the Crohn's ulcerative colitis community, I have been attacked by carnivore wow. diet people. Um, you know, it's, it's, we're not, as someone with Crohn's, we're not going to just have our entire digestive system removed without trying every possible thing. And I keep hearing more and more and more about how, well, this will just solve all the problems. And this person, you know, went all carnivore, all meat diet, and now they're, they're fine. And I've tried that and it actually ended up putting me in the hospital because I did try that. Um, it did not work for my body setup and Crohn's and colitis is very different, different from person to person. What are your thoughts on that diet? Well, I think it's super interesting that we have these like really polar opposites, you know, um, (laughs) the, the vegan and the carnivore and, um, especially on social media, these folks are the most, um, they're the meanest people. <laughs> you know, I mean, they come after you. Um, um, so I'm kind of happy to be right in the middle as an omnivore. You know, um, I like eating fruits and vegetables and grains and beans and nuts and seeds. I like eating animal products. I feel like it gives me a lot more opportunities and I feel um, healthiest when I have a variety of different options and choices. Um, you know, anecdotally, I hear from other dietitians who see people who have subscribed to these very kind of limited and rigid diets and, you know, we are seeing some problems from these people. Um, you know, it's not going to show up in two weeks. Uh, may not show up in two months, but it may show up on a longer term basis. Um, I, I just can't see the enjoyment in that personally. And I, um, but that being said, 
like you isn't said, Jenny, that the, isn't that the key to healthy diet though, Leah? Is what's that? You have to you have to enjoy your what you're eating, or it's right. not going to be successful. Right, exactly. And you know, a lot of these diets are only as successful as your ability to stick with them. You know, mm-hmm. and um, and and stay healthy and feel good and be healthy. And there probably are people out there who do really well just eating meat. And, um, and there are probably people out there and I know there are people out there who do find just eating a vegan diet. Um, but in both cases, I think they probably have to have some sort of supplementation in vitamins and minerals somewhere along the way. I mean, um, I wouldn't be able to survive because I've dealt with chronic anemia for so many years. Right. And for those that don't know, I mean, we raise meat. That's what we do here. And I am very pro-meat, but I'm also pro-balance, and I do like my vegetables even more so than fruit. But there just has to be a happy medium, I I think. And... So I have a question for both of you that may seem flippant, but it's not. Have you ever met a Republican vegan or a carnivore Democrat? Probably. I don't really know. I don't yeah. think so. I don't, yeah. I don't think it has anything to do with diet. It's like the biggest political statement that somebody thinks they can possibly make. I've had supper with a pro-GMO vegan. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and they were an independent or what's your point <laughs> all right I, I don't, I don't. we're in the last uh, two minutes your best dietary advice for us on the day because there's there's so many thought processes out there you said keep it in the middle but what's your profound parting wisdom today um i think we need to really do a better job enjoying the food that we eat and um appreciating where it comes from um i think that um especially here in the united states i mean we are so incredibly blessed with a variety of foods across the united states and I think the average American has no idea how fortunate we are. So I think if we take a little bit more time to reflect on that and appreciate um, the variety we have and um, that we would probably be better off if, if we took the time with every meal to kind of just think about that, like, how fortunate, how blessed we are, and to help others who aren't as fortunate and aren't as blessed. I think that that's also a really important message. Jenny? Um, I want to go back to the food banks. Uh, my middle son has been volunteering at our Midwest uh, food bank, and there's quite a need for volunteers right now. So oh, okay. I guess my contribution at the end is to look to see where you can help if you can help. Great point. Yeah. That'll do it. And my closing bit of thought is that uh, we all need to just take a little more time. I'm guilty myself of eating a brat while driving down the road. (laughs) Take time, sit down with the family, 
maybe discuss yes. the nutrients that were in that product. <laughs> that is the best advice we could have. We have successfully journeyed. And thanks, Mindy. She had to find a, a conservative vegan. What a bogarty. We've successfully journeyed down the road connecting rural and urban America. All three of us remind you that all roads do lead to a rural route. See you tomorrow, Red Shirt Friday. No doubt technology is the future of agriculture. We use it with Neogen in our genomic testing, and we use it in our certified Piedmontese system. We also use it in our boars. Get more details about certified Piedmontese at LoneCreekCattleCo.com and Neogen at Neogen.com. See you tomorrow, Red Shirt Friday.